everybody. This is Charles Hand. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of February 17th, 2022. I am here with George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Hello. And I'm here with filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hello. This week, we are going to be talking about Movie Pass. Yeah, Movie Pass is back, and we have thoughts. Then we've got two tech news this week. We have Edit Ready bringing us some cool tech features that I think people should be aware of. And then we're going to be talking about a Ask No Film School that is sort of tech-related about which lenses are going to fit which cameras. All this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our first, our, our first story this week is a story we've talked about. I mean, this might be our most discussed brand. I don't know that... You know, like there's the studios and there's Marvel, but like Movie Pass, really, there's always every six months or so, there's something to yeah, talk about. Yeah, we talk about it for sure. Yeah, there's always a new, there's always a new thing with Movie Pass. So, Movie Pass, if you don't remember, way back in the summer of 2019, you could buy a monthly subscription to see as many movies as you wanted, and then what they did is like you just use the Movie Pass card to buy tickets, and then they'd reimburse you for it. And what they hadn't planned for is that there's people who will legit see a movie every goddamn mm-hmm. day. And just like, we're like, oh my God, I can see 20 movies a month and it'll only cost me $29.99 or whatever. And so MoviePass quickly realized that they didn't have a good business model. Also quickly started fucking with people, like breaking their passwords and stuff. Like if you were a power user, this all came out in the wash when MoviePass imploded. Where like they'd be like, oh well, let's just randomly reset their password <laughs> so they can't get into the site and make it really hard to fix. As you're so standing you've ever, in the theater lobby, like aching to see a movie, that's when that would happen. Oh, can I tell you guys? A, I that was a beautiful yeah. summer when Movie Pass came out because I lived above an Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn. What? And I would go and see the morning horror movie. That's like a great way to start your Saturday morning. You get the adrenaline pumping and then you see the horror. Then you go about your day and you can check off a bunch of things. So it was a beautiful summer when Movie Pass came out. And then they well, started every, messing with us. Everything that... So, so you experienced this. You were on the receiving end of this garbage? Oh, yeah. I, there was a time where I'd start to go down and, and you know, I'd be speaking with the folks at the Alamo Draft House and they'd be like, yeah... There's nothing we can do. It doesn't show in the system. And then you'd be standing there trying to change your password. You're you're watching the clock tick down. It was a very stressful time after a very wonderful time. So, so wow, I didn't realize we were on with an actual because I had a one year old, <laughs> so I was I missed out on MoviePass. But this is great. This is first person. So all this came out that this was deliberate when MoviePass went down. Like all of the paper because I've always suspected this of companies that they would do this kind of stuff, but like just to be able to read the emails where people are like, all right, well, let's turn up the password resets by five. And you're like, it's just a metric to you guys. Anyway, movie passes back, which I like, I'm, I guess I'm okay with that, but like, am I okay? Like what? like, are you guys, what is this going to be? And it's basically, they are relaunching ad supported. So you're going to be able to watch some ads on your phone and they're going to use your phone camera to track your eyeballs to ensure you're actually watching the ad. So you can't just do that thing where you like set up the phone and then you're like cleaning your apartment while the ads play. You have to stare at your phone and they will know if you don't. 
But then if you watch those ads, you get a discount on movie tickets. Strange model, I'd say. A unexpected model. Uh, what do, you, yeah, I mean, what I do you guys think? I feel I have no idea, frankly, if it'll work. I am not the target because as much as I, I've mentioned whenever we talk about movie pass, like I knew so many people who were the like Gigi, like just people who were all up in this movie pass thing and taking advantage. And then like, Oh my God, it's, it's broken. Like it's not working anymore. They figured it out. Um, and I was never like, I, I, I feel like I've talked about it before. There was a time in my life where I was, a, I will see whatever, you know, and I'm not there anymore. And I wasn't there in 2019. And I won't be there again this year either or next year <laughs> or anytime soon. So I think what I think for me, I'm very curious to see if it works. I actually hope it works because I want more people mm-hmm. to be going to see movies. I think it's great to get people to theaters. I'm curious how using, yeah, mobile advertisement. So what's interesting to me more than how it applies to the movie necessarily or the movie business or this particular model is what it means for us to use our phone and advertising on our phone as a gateway to something. Mm-hmm. So to some kind of content, because as we all know, nobody's watching what they're watching anymore. They're usually watching their phone. And I wonder like how it's going to start to like, you could be watching TV, but you're not forget about not watching commercials because you're streaming it or whatever. You're not watching the show because of your phone. Like that's just normal now. So what I'm curious about, I guess, is this model of we're going to serve ads at the place where people are, you know, and, and how that might open up opportunity if the place where people are, i.e. their phone, is the gateway. So like, again, it's interesting to me that it's like to get your ticket, you have to watch this ad. I think that could be something that we see happen a lot in the near future. Because again, that the phone is where we are. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see ads. We obviously already are being served all kinds of ads all over our phones. I'm just saying, I think there's, they're going to be more of a, you watch this to get that. And I do think that that's something that will impact our audience and filmmakers for a couple of reasons. One, because that's content you could learn to make. Mm-hmm. You can be in production on, but also because the ads, I mean, but also because this could be part of the, how do you get a, have a relationship directly to people who might watch things, whether or not you're creating something, you know, YouTube ads don't generate a whole lot of revenue. If you just want to put your, your finished project on YouTube and try to make some money that way, maybe there will be ways that this kind of advertising thing works to your advantage, this model, I mean. Yeah, I I totally agree with you, especially like any way to support getting people butts and seats at a movie theater. And I wonder if this model would appeal to Gen Z. So I have a a brother who is just graduated from high school, like always in his phone, doesn't watch movies like he's never seen Jurassic Park, which is a tragedy. I forced him to watch it. Actually, it's just too old. It's too old a movie. I know, these days, it, but right? it, it's like I forced might him as well to be watch. Frustrating. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, what are these dinosaur puppets? He actually really liked it. <laughs> <Puppets>. <laughs> I was like, I swear, the puppets are cool. The puppets are what makes it, man. But what if, what if yeah. this sort of like pre-video experience, like if they can sort of create content that speaks to 
that enhances or, or makes it, you know, it's more than just an ad, make it custom to the experience. Maybe that's a way to like engage even in this new generation that doesn't really engage with movies so much. But also I worked in advertising for years. So I have a lot of questions about like how this is going to work because I don't really know if there's scale to creating these ads that track your engagement. And, and there's also this comparison that the founder who then was fired, who then was bought movie pass again, which is, you know, is its own story. He, he compares it to, to audible, this sort of like credit system. But the thing with audible is that you can use your credits to buy audiobooks. You can buy one-off audiobooks outside of those credits and audible is producing their own content. And that trifecta is how they're profitable. Plus they have Amazon backing. So I don't really know if the numbers will add up with this pre-ticket ad watching. I'm cautiously optimistic, especially if they can make it like cater to the audience. But, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to make something. And I don't know what the scale is. And are you going to make something for every single movie? Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA, you'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, and beyond that, let's also remember that Audible is audiobooks. The average audiobook is like 24 hours or something. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like once you factor in all those like 40-hour Lord of the Ring books or whatever. So like, Sure, a 20-month subscription where you get one or two audiobooks a month like feels kind of fair because you're only going to make it through. I mean, there's people out there who do four or five audiobooks a month, but they're intense. Most people I know, it's like one book a month on average. I know so many people who go to the movies like once a week or more on average. I certainly did before child and hopefully will again once child is old enough to join. And so like, it's just, it's one of those things of like, whenever I'm, I'm always so suspicious whenever a company is like, it's like this company, but for X, it's like, it's like Uber for whatever. It's like Air- it's Airbnb <laughs> everything for is like Uber for <laughs> everything yeah. is and, like, and I'm always Uber worried because I'm movies. like, there's, there are specificities to markets that make certain things work and other things not work. Right. Like just things that aren't Airbnb like there's no, and for this, it's like, well, but sure. These are both digital content, but one takes you 20 hours to consume and you do it in little bits as you're, sitting on the subway or driving somewhere and it's unlimited and the other, like once you make it you can download it and sell it on unlimited yeah. infinity times exactly whereas this is like a two-hour thing that there are definitely people out there who will see two movies a day 
Absolutely. Especially if you're like working remote and you're like, I don't even have commute time anymore. Why not see two movies? So I, I don't know. I'm suspicious. I also, the eye tracking, frankly, freaks me out. Like I understand from a advertiser's perspective. Can you get, can you break it down for us again? Just the whole, how this is supposed to work. So basically there's like multiple tiers to the subscription system. Each tier comes with credits. Like with Audible, you have a monthly subscription, you get two credits a month and they accumulate. So if you haven't bought an audiobook in a couple months, you might check in and you're like, I have five credits. I can get five books today. Similar here, there's different price points that give you different subscription levels. The cheapest price point, you also get a discount on movies for watching ads on your phone, but it uses the phone camera to send out to tell, to eye track you, basically. Because there's a lot of tech in our phones now for eye tracking. Like There's the face recognition tech that's built in our phones and our front-facing cameras. And there's a lot of tools out there to tell whether or not our eyeballs are actually pointed at the phone. I don't know if this involves infrared, but our, our eyes also reflect infrared and ultraviolet light differently. So, like, there are certain academic tools where they shine infrared light. I, I doubt they're doing it here. I suspect it's just like, is the eyeball facing the camera? But literally, like, you're sitting there, you're watching your phone, and you're getting paid in, like, discount credits. But then if somebody, like, asks you a question and you look over at them, you lose your discount credit money because you're not paying attention to your phone. And it's like, this is the dystopian, like, whoa. (laughs) It's so sick. It's so sick. It's like, are you looking at the ad? No, really? Are you? Well, and there's like a billion Because you're not going to get to go to the movie if you're yeah, not looking. you got to watch your ads. But once this tech rolls out, then it rolls out in all sorts of other ways, mm-hmm. right? Like once, Because yes. it's all about moving the, uh, the Overton Windows politics. But once people get used to the idea of like, oh, well, of course my phone is watching me. And of course I want to make my phone happy. Uh, <laughs> it, it becomes this weird thing where people will be like, well, I guess I have to look at all these ads on Instagram or else my posts won't get the engagement I want. Like, well, how about the, let's look at another, you know, application. Like you're not allowed to vote in the, for the Academy Awards unless, you know, you're watching the movie the whole time. No, that would, <laughs> I, I vote yes. So yes, yes. It would be nice. Like, I mean, just, I'm just thinking about how there's a weird. Well, you're not allowed to vote for president if you haven't watched a 30 minute infomercial from all of <laughs> oh, the man. candidates. Yes, it's a it's a great way to. Uh, oh yeah, drive down the vote. Democracy. Like, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating to me. We talked about a little bit about like watch what watching what the eye does in regards to. Rack focus. Mm-hmm. Remember, we talked about that in the viewfinder, checking where your eye is focusing and like our control. Do you remember that, Charles? That tech? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. And uh, the, the famous P.T. Anderson video where there's a scene from uh, There Will Be Blood and you can see everybody's eyes where they're watching on screen and, yes. and sort of the staging. Yeah. We have these very rudimentary things like we can heat map a website, for example, like www.nofilmschool.com and we can see where people are clicking. But that's so far from like getting a heat map of what people are looking at and how that might change. Think again, as a filmmaker, like if we forget all these more kind of scary Orwellian applications, like think about it from an artistic perspective where you think so much about where you want the eye to go and we sort of try our best to craft a frame or, or a shot or a sequence. We think about movement direction or we think about subconscious placement. But if we knew 
in our tests. I mean, again, I can't help but go to the Orwellian place mm-hmm. of like doing test screenings for Disney where I don't know why I'm making Disney the villain here. Anyone could be, but where they're just like, nobody's looking at the actor's face. So we got to recast. So it's like, well, I, you know, that was one audience. Maybe <laughs> only 10% of the first test screening looked at the proper place on screen. So we need to reshoot. Can you imagine? Yes. I mean, that's absolutely about to happen if it's not happening already. Mm. Thrilling. Oh, yeah. Terrifying. I, I do think I that mean, there, you, George, you bring up an a interesting point about actually pressure testing, like from a shot perspective. So if you're like, I know I need to draw the eyeballs of the audience to this corner, so this jump scare will work. I, like mm. that, again, it's like, I guess you'd have to have a lot of resources at your hand to, to pull that off. But it, it it's like, in a way, it's like you could get one step closer to the quote unquote perfect shot. Mm. Yeah. So I'm sure I mean, I'm powers just, will be used for you know the ad evil. You, yes. yes. <laughs> evil or or not evil, but just money. Yeah. Because that's the most obvious application. Totally. Like that's the reward that we that we that we circle or function around. Mm-hmm. But I was just th- for some reason it's in my mind. I was thinking about Power of the Dog and how there were some very obvious like intelligent uses of like we're going to show this to you in a way that you're really going to look at it. But I don't know if you're going to know what it means or mm. what it is. You know, and I was thinking, I keep thinking about like a heat map for like, were people looking at that thing? Were they looking at the right thing? Or, and But even then, we don't know if they were looking at it and understanding what it was. Like, that's a whole other layer. But I'm fascinated by this. There's definitely, I find myself mildly. sometimes watching shows or movies and it, there will be a shot where it's like, there's an extra in just out of focus, overacting slightly. And, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what they had for lunch today. And it totally takes me out of the moment. So like, you know, again, with unlimited resources, it's like, oh, that could be addressed in a way, but I, I probably going to be used for, for money (laughs) (laughs) in this attention economy. I mean, I understand that advertisers want to feel like they are getting their money's worth. And I, so I get that. I mean, we already struggle with that with product placement. I mean, that's why product placement is such a big deal because people know you're at least watching the TV show. But now that people are watching their phones instead of the show, they're missing. Like if you're just listening to a show, you don't see what phone the character is using, mm-hmm. just to use an example of a common product placement. So it's like, it's yet another way to try and get that attention. And I feel like it's a fun game of cat and mouse, but I don't, like, I don't know that I would willingly want to participate in this particular one. Yeah. But I just, winding it back, like I know there's so many crazy applications to this and potential ways it branches out, but I keep winding back to this idea that I think I would rather have to watch an ad before I get to unlock a new release on a streaming platform than pay a premium one-time fee. Like, I think I would rather that transaction, Hmm. I think. I'm not sure, but I think because then it means that I am contributing to an ad creation economy, not just to hand money to the streamer. Do you know what I mean? Like that there's a relationship between advertisers and products and people who create ads. And that's a whole industry, especially for production people. I keep thinking about that too. Like, as opposed to just here, Disney take more money, that it would be like, Disney's going to make you watch this ad 
And then, I mean, it would probably be for another Disney product, but whatever. And it's really easy to dismiss advertising as not creative, but it is. I mean, there, totally. as much as I, there were some, uh, you know, not as innovative storytelling Super Bowl, Super Bowl ads. There was, there was one that I think was for the NFL where like the players came out of the TV and it was like almost, it, it felt like Toy Story, like in its in its chaos and with a beginning, middle, and end, like a scene cut out of a movie. And I was like, oh, this a lot of thought went into this. I understand the characters, I understand the dynamics, and then there's a button at the end. Like it, there's some, there was some really great storytelling even in those thirty and sixty second spots. Yep, it's it's absolutely a medium, a narrative medium, an art form, and it's one that employs tons of filmmakers. I yeah. I worked at uh and Charles knows this uh but I worked at a podcast company for a long time and we would build custom mid-roll spots for our shows and it and I was in ad sales so I was basically educating the ad industry and people who are so used to measuring to the engagement metric of like is your eyeball even watching this ad but we didn't have that type of measurement and podcasting at all. It was sort of, you know, even to this day, we can't measure in the same way because the tech's just not there. And really what mm. the the way that we were able to partner with people was because of, you know, going back to almost like Mad Men basics of like, oh, it's great to be around this type of storytelling. Your brand could be there. Um, and it was, it did take some time uh, and it was a longer sales cycle, but, you know, people came around and, and a people did see the value. So I think that there is like, could be a flip side of, you know, maybe not as closely measured engagement on the movie pass app, but still the value of being near great content near movies. That's super valuable. Oh, I hadn't thought about that, but that it is a sales pitch to an advertiser to be like, you know, we know that this movie is something wonderful that you love. And you're, this is a way to effectively run an ad against the theatrical movie experience and hopefully give you the halo effect. Like if you're in the lobby watching an ad right before seeing a movie that totally moves you, like for instance, the last theatrical movie that like completely like gave me that was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm. where I thought about it for like a week after. And yeah, if like I had seen a Coca-Cola ad right before that, would they merge in my brain? that I had to watch in my phone. I mean, you see a Coca-Cola ad before every movie you ever <laughs> see ever in a movie theater, so that might be the worst example. But it is an interesting thought to yeah. think about, like, this is a way, this is potentially a way for, you know, because it combines the best of both worlds, right? The problem with movie theater ads is they're a blunt instrument where, sure, it runs Coca-Cola before every movie you've ever seen in the history of mankind, but it's not targeted. Whereas this is the potential to be, like, a heavily targeted ad where they know who's holding the phone. They know it's like, oh, this is a 42-year-old dad, as opposed mm. to this is a 23-year-old who fancies himself a warrior or whatever, <laughs> some other person. You know, Classic. like, I don't know the names that they profile people with, but, you know, they profile people. And this gives you both. This gives you, we can both build a profile and run it right before a movie. So it's, I mean, it's interesting. It's just the eyeball thing. The mm. eyeball thing, which I, if I understood the talk correctly, technically that eyeball information stays within the the app and the user so it's not like 
oh, we know this user, like it's not something that advertisers can leverage. It just tracks the engagement. So I think that's an important distinction that it's like your eyeball movements won't be going back to Coca-Cola. They'll be staying just to make sure you're watching the ad. But still, eyeball, again. I, mean, I, I don't even know that I'm worried if Coca-Cola knows my, how my eyeballs move. <laughs> I'm more worried. I mean, maybe I should be. If someone can explain to me why I don't want that, I'm open to it. Sure. But I'm more just generally worried about like, well, mother fuck, like you, you can tell if I'm watching, you know, cause we've all done that thing where you have some sort of like video you have to watch for some reason and you like leave it playing while you do something else, you know, some sort of mandatory training or like you used to get a discount in California. If you did traffic school mm. online, even if you didn't have any tickets, you could get a discount on your insurance. So, you know, you'd like leave the video playing while you're doing dishes or whatever. And like, I would, I take driving very seriously. I think safety is very important, but those online traffic schools are, are not full of vital information. So yeah, the ability you, that you can't do that anymore, that you can't have your personal American freedom to ignore content is what is worrying for me. With that, let's move on to tech news. So in tech news, ProRes Raw is finally spreading a little bit. So for those of you who don't know, ProRes Raw is meant to be an open source raw format. Raw gives you more flexibility in posts. So if you shoot and the color balance is a little wrong or the exposure is a little wrong, you can push it a little further in post. And most raw formats are manufacturer proprietary. Like Aerie has Aerie Raw, Red has Red Raw, Canon has Canon Raw. But then Apple, who makes ProRes, worked with Atomos to launch ProRes Raw, which is like meant to be an open platform that everybody can work with, which is good because then it's open platforms are good. We can all agree on that. It makes life easier. And so like DJI supports ProRes Raw, Panasonic uh, supports ProRes Raw. A lot of manufacturers who don't have their own have gone for ProRes Raw. But the problem is, is it has some issues in post. You can't use it in Resolve and you'll probably never be able to use it in Resolve. I really wish they would change this, but there's some um, like corporate drama there that'll probably mean they should never change it. But goddamn, I wish they would support ProRes Raw because it would be great because I love Resolve. So you, you were stuck sort of using it in Final Cut Pro or Premiere or Avid, but you don't really have the color grading tools in Premiere or Avid. And Final Cut Pro is fine, but it's not as common. And so there's finally a solution, which is Edit Ready. If you don't know Edit Ready, Edit Ready is a software that does one thing, and that's transcodes. That's all it does. But it's like five times faster than any other software. So if you have like a bunch of stuff you shot and you want to get it Edit Ready, did I just do an ad? If you want to get it ready to edit. <laughs> You're um, tracking our eyeballs? Like, they tricked me. <laughs> they hear it. It's like uh, when you're not supposed to say somebody's like those anime where like you can't say the name of a person on the phone because then they'll hear it. Like it's like over the whole, like every, all phone messages are listened to or whatever. <laughs> I think that's Ghost in the Shell. Anyway, I said Edit Ready and now Edit Ready heard me say it. Edit Ready, all it does is like it takes your footage and it makes Edit Ready versions of it. It's really good at it. It's really simple. It's 50 bucks. It might be 60 now, but it's like so worth it because it's so good at getting your footage ready for edit and it's super fast. Finally, is supporting ProRes Raw which like, I think is good news and everybody should know about because like, let's say you want to shoot ProRes raw and you want to edit in other software and have like a really quick, easy transcode process. This is, this is the tool. It's finally coming together. Now I hope Resolve eventually supports it for final color, but even for now, like it's, it's the move. I'm psyched about it. I'm glad it's here. That's pretty huge. And then our Ask No Film School this week is coming all the way from uh, Meghalaya, India. From Pradeep Karba. I know we have a lot of readers in India, so I'm always glad when we get reach out from our Indian readers. Pradeep asks, 
is there an adapter where I can use PL mount lenses on my EF mount camera? It sounds like Pradeep owns some PL mount CP2 lenses and wants to use them on the Blackmagic 6K Pro. Appreciating information. So yes and no. I'm, uh, I'm going to give you the full answer, but I'm going to try and also talk about the general concepts of adapting lenses in a way that I think benefits every filmmaker. Yeah, so, can you uh, can you take it back and contextualize for those of us who are unfamiliar with the terminology? I will do. So it used to be that behind the lens mount, you needed room for a spinning mirror. So older lens mounts had a deeper, what we call the flange focal distance, the distance from the sensor to the lens mount. And so older ones had a much bigger one, you know, like 47 millimeters, 51 millimeters, because they needed space in the back there to fit in a mirror. So you couldn't adapt older lenses to other older lens mounts. So like if I had a PL mount camera, I couldn't really put EF mount lenses on it. If I had EF mount camera, I couldn't really put PL mount lenses on it. There were like some very basic adapters made, but they basically didn't work because there wasn't enough physical room. What happened about 10 years ago is we started launching cameras with really shallow lens mounts. These are the mirrorless cameras you've heard about, and the mirror that's mm -hmm. missing, hence mirrorless, opens mm. up more room behind it. Because there's not a mirror there, they can have a shallower lens mount. So that's when you're looking at Fuji X or Canon RF or Sony E or Panasonic's open L mount that they do with Leica and a few others. And those are super easy to adapt because there's a lot of space there. So if you have a Sony E camera, it, it, it's under 20 millimeters, the flange focal distance. And EF is like 45. I should have these memorized. I'm embarrassed I don't, but whatever. It's general. So there's like a 20 millimeter space or so, roughly, to make an adapter. So there's plenty of room to have an adapter. And it's super easy if you have a Sony E to adapt to any of the old lenses like PL or EF. Now, you can't adapt from new to new right? Like mm. L is really shallow and E is really shallow. So you can't, there's no adapter from like E mount lenses to L mount bodies. The mm. big space for adapters is like the older formats with the deep flange focal and the new formats with shallower flange focal. That's really the space. There's a new format called LPL, which actually has an adapter to the old format PL. So that's more in the cinema space. So what you're trying to do is like a very common thing we all do, which is we've bought PL lenses at some point in our careers because we all stuck with PL because for like 30 years, that was the dominant, dominant sim cinema format. And we were all assuming that that was going to stay the dominant cinema format for a long time. So it made sense to invest in lenses there. Blackmagic has made a weird decision with their 6K Pro. And I actually called them out on it when it was announced where I was like, Blackmagic, we love you, but you're letting us down where I was like, why are they sticking with the EF mount? Because like Canon this week announced they're not making any EF mount lenses anymore. Like they're done. Mm. EF mount's over. And they haven't really made an EF mount lens in like four years. So it was really weird. The argument Blackmagic made, because I had a conversation with somebody there about it, was like, look, yes, there are no new lenses coming, but there's like 100 million EF mount lenses in existence. And so it made the most sense for the Pro to be EF mount because then you wouldn't have to buy an adapter and you'd have all these lens choices. And I get it and I understand. And the reason why I forgave Blackmagic, and weirdly, the Blackmagic 6K Pro became the first camera I bought in like 10 years, because I'm not really a big fan of owning stuff. But I bought a 6K Pro, because Wooden Camera makes a $300 adapter that you can use to change it to a peel mount camera. Now, you can't go back and forth. 
This isn't the kind of adapter where you're like, oh, I take a piece off, I put a piece on and it swaps. There are modern cameras that with like a swappable mount. Like I've got Nursa Mini Pro that I've been using a little bit that like you can just swap the lens mount out. You need a torque wrench, it's fine. That is not this. If you're going to do this, you're going to move your 6K Pro to PL mount and you don't want to go back. Going back and forth, no good. There's like plastic bits in there. You're going to break. It's going to be not ideal. You only want to do this if you're just doing it. But if you want to do it, Wooden Camera makes a great one. It's three or $400. It's really solid. It, I did it immediately to the Blackmagic 6K Pro I bought, and I shoot with it with PL mount lenses all the time. Because of the in, the way the inside of the system works, not every PL mount lens will fit, but that's actually like weirdly common with PL. Like I remember back in the days, you'd do a camera prep, and you'd order your lenses, and the camera house would always be like, oh, hey, this lens isn't actually going to work with that camera body because the rear elements of the lens stick out too much or something. And that's, you run into that a little bit here. There's a couple lenses I've tried to mount on the 6K Pro with a PL mount, and it doesn't quite fit. But for the most part, like 95% of the PL mount lenses I use fit. I'm pretty sure the CP2s will fit, and that's what you would do. But then that rules out ever shooting with EF again on that particular camera. So you've got to like make a choice and jump in. Questions or thoughts? I like that the advice is to just make a choice and go with it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's I, like I didn't understand. I knew all the pieces of the puzzle, but I didn't know that it was the mirror size, the movement of the mirror, and the space required that made the lens that made the different mount longer and changed the focal length, the distance. I mean, yeah, and that was true on still and in motion. So in motion, it was a spinning mirror, and still it was like a swingy mirror, but it was the same. That's why. In both formats, there was like room there for the mirror that made it so that the lens mount had to be deeper and we don't need to do that anymore. So we don't. And now that you can have a shallower lens mount, there's all sorts of things that open up in the lens design that make for some interesting, like it's more lens designers are happy about no longer having the mirror in the back. They can having the rear element closer to the sensor opens up some cool flexibility. So. And there is a lot more that goes into like, lens choice has become a much bigger defining factor. I feel like now that the sensors are all amazing and somewhat it, similar. It is image. In their, like yeah. it is all anybody it's all DPs are into now is like, I have these lenses. I have access to these lenses. I can shoot with these lenses. Like that is so much of the personality we put on an image is what lenses we can get. I mean, sensors still have different personalities and we're starting to see some cool sensor designs like the symmetrical design from Blackmagic. But for the most part, like, yeah, lenses, that's like where the animal is these days. And you hear, you know, you'll hear DPs always talk about, that's why I think this question is so relevant, even though I don't didn't have the answer, so I'm glad you could provide it. But for filmmakers who are sort of like, why does this impact me or why should I care? It's like, because the lens choice is going to be, like you just said, Charles, it's going to be where you define the look of your movie these, or your piece these days. And as you're thinking through, like, let's say you're a director or producer, as you're thinking through, like, all right, well, the director's asking for this, like, vintage 60s look, like, it's going to become an issue. Like, what camera the DP already owns if you're expecting to use their camera and what's going to fit and what's going to adapt and what's not going to fit. Like that's some stuff, even if you're like, I'm never want to be a DP, that's some stuff you should still have some basic handle on because it's going to affect what kind of images can be created. Totally. 
Okay, so that's this week on the No Film School podcast. I'm all over the internet at charleshane.com uh, and charleshane on Instagram and Twitter. I also have a lens test coming for the DJI 4D mm. that is all done. We've shot a bunch of, we shot all the lenses we could possibly shoot for the DJI 4D, which has like a really low weight limit. So we were testing all sorts of lenses I've never shot before. And I just have to get off. I just have to, I just have to get moving and finish writing it. And then we'll have a really cool lens test for everybody. I'm on the internet at Lost in Graceland or ggHawkins.com. I co-host a podcast with Charles called Distorted by Glamour. It's our sort of slow burn podcast that we release about labor issues in the film industry. And the final episode of my web series, which is Channel 101 thing that has existed in the last year, is actually out today. So check it out. Kind of flaky. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And you can find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram and YouTube. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment. And let us know what you think and send us your questions, like this great question we got today. Send them to editor at nofilmschool.com. And last but not least, at the top of our homepage, nofilmschool.com, we have a survey for all cinematographers and videographers of all kinds. We are gathering data to help us help you learn what you should be charging wherever you live, whatever kind of projects you're doing, whatever kind of work you are looking to bill for. We are trying to crowdsource some information and then get people accurate data on what a reasonable rate is for them. Thanks so much for listening.